personal views and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are their own and are not legal advice or official statements by their organizations. Hello, my name is Debbie Reynolds, and they call me the Data Diva. This is the Data Diva Talks Privacy Podcast, where we discuss data privacy issues with industry leaders around the world with information that businesses need to know now. I have a special guest on the show, uh, Noel Eckerman. He is the president of CyberXR, and I'm happy to have him on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Excited for this conversation. Yeah, this is going to be fun. So I just have to tell a story about how we met or got to know each other at all. Um, You and I collaborate with uh, XRSI, which is run by Kavir Perlman. So she runs a safety initiative around kind of all things reality, all digital types of reality. So that's XR, VR, you know, all the R's, <laughs> all the types of realities that there can be. And uh, so I have worked with her on, I think it was um, one of their, pri- the privacy frameworks. I run kind of the compliance part of that. But I think that you and I had got on some joint call- calls a couple of years ago. But this year, um, I had the pleasure of being a panelist on a session about um, privacy in the metaverse as it relates to kind of all these different types of realities. And you were on there as well. And I was really struck by your, you know, authority, right? Uh, The way that you speak about the space and the way that you're very passionate in it. And so, and there aren't that many chocolate people that I can talk to. So I I love to have chocolate people on my show. And it's really cool. That's right. (laughs) Um, You, so... You're you're fascinating. So you're you're a tech tech wizard. I would love to kind of talk about have you talked about kind of your journey in technology and, and uh, XR, what you do, and then then your interest in privacy. I would love to hear you talk about that. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm I am an anomaly. Uh, one being chocolate in the space, as you put it, and then two. Um, a bit of uh, an enigma because I come from a both a design and a technical background, which is perfect because I'm a product manager. Um, you know, entrepreneurship, uh, a recovering startup founder as well. So a little bit of the business sort of sense. But I started my career as a uh, confidential assistant, to po- uh, confidential assistant to policy technology policy for Senator, now Senator Mark Warner. This is when he was a, a um, uh, running for governor and when he was in, 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 in office uh, for the Commonwealth of Virginia. And, and it's funny because my life has gone full circle when we start talking about extended reality, uh, because where I live is at the intersection of, you know, you know, how to be good stewards of users' data. So we talk, I talk a lot about data privacy in, in, in talks and, in, in, you know, blog posts, papers, conversations with you, um, like podcasts and, and, and the like. Uh, I'm, you know, right there uh, when it comes to, you know, policy uh, and, and, and policy making around uh, the impacts of um, data use uh, in, in, in practical applications that we depend on today and looking a little for, uh, 
uh, forward-looking uh, into how data is used, uh, is, is planned on being used in the future. So that's the end users focus, the, the, the policymakers focus, and then the creators, right? So I'm just sort of roping in uh, device manufacturers and, you know, studios uh, or independent creators of, of, um, of experiences like for XR or generally for AI, which is actually my full-time job. So um that's where I sort of sit right in the middle. And it's perfect to be a product manager because I kind of talk to those different stakeholders uh, at all times. Um, how did I, the second part of that question was like, how did I get into this? Um, so as someone working in digital software, you know, data is a bedrock of what I do day to day, right? Uh, and back in 2011, I, you know, was working for a different company. I had, you know, through a consulting firm, um, I was actually co-founded, uh, co-founded by me and a good friend. Uh, and we're doing just uh, consulting services, but I really, really wanted to work on a product in, in sort of the emergent space. Uh, and I sort of got a hold of the Nike Fuel Band, I think it was called. And, you know, it's got an accelerometer in it and it could step counter. Uh, and in my mind, if it counts steps, that means it, it tracks motion. So the question I wanted to answer is, could it count a jumping jack? At the time, um, New York Times had this sort of seven minute, what is it? Seven minute workout or something that was super famous at the time. It was like 2010, 2011. So it fascinated me is like using a simple tool like the Nike Fuel, but Fuel Band, could I actually work out? And so, uh, do like basic workouts, like jumping jacks and being able to detect it all in the tool. So fast track, I quit my comfy job, started a startup, something called Byte and Atom Research. We were just sort of looking at answering some of these questions. Uh, and my hope was that, you know, a product will fall out of it. And the product did. Uh, I built a, um, uh, a, a fitness assistant uh, on Google Glass. We were a launch partner for Google Glass, if you remember that device. One thing that I learned through that uh, process, naturally, if I'm tracking biometrics, so my motion, uh, my gait, uh, in order to tell someone who's um, having a hard time walking and sort of provide them with a, reg a regimen to um, help them live a healthier life or somebody who's just looking to work out and want to prevent them from reaching for a tablet or a phone when they want to do a circuit. Uh, we wanted that that heads worn experience was great for it. One and then two, I was collecting a lot of data, right? Uh, and so I've always looked at it as this is not my data. This is you know my users' data. So fitness experts or uh, their customers, that's their data. And so I started thinking about like how to. Um, how to, how to sort of collect this data in a safe way, right? So that in, in the inevitable breach, you know, you couldn't tie someone's workout routine out of, you know, worst case to their name and their email. Uh, and so a lot of, uh, you know, governance of how I use the data, you know, how long I retained it, went into that product at, 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 with LinksFit. Um, 
around that time, Google Glass was flailing. Um, it, it, you know, launched, it was doing great. I was raising money and I went on a flight. Uh, and um, as I was clearing security, got into the airplane, checked my bags, flight attendant comes to me and says, you got to take the, those uh, smart glasses off. And so I go, wait, these are, you know, my prescriptions are tied into these Google glasses and, you know, I, I'm not recording. It's like, no, you're making passengers nervous. By the way, as I was going back and forth with this flight attendant, everyone around me had their phones out recording, right? So I started thinking then, this is actually what launched my career in, into, in that case, assisted reality, which is Google Glass, but sort of data trust as a subject or data stewardship as a area of interest for me. Because there are many reasons why Google Glass failed. But if I were to guess, there were three things that Google didn't do well. One was context. Everybody around me on that plane didn't understand what Google Glass was or did. And for those who knew that it could record, they didn't know how Google would use that data. So you'd hear some nightmarish stories like a passenger wearing Google Glass on the BART uh, in San Francisco getting punched in the face because they had it on. Um, and so there was no context. There, there was no understanding as to how the information was going to be used, how long it was, um, you know, stored for, you know, how Google would turn my face into selling me an ad down. There's so many reasons for that. So that was the first thing, a lack of context in, in my way of under, trying to explain why I think Google failed or Google Glass failed. Um, number two is, okay, well, in addition to not having context, now I actually, I believe, let's say I believe that Google Glass did allow the wearer to record me. Where does, where does that information go? And do I have the choice to opt out of being tagged or being sold to with ads? Because Google's an ad company, so that's where people's mind goes. And the media also uh, perpetuates that regardless of what measures Google does to protect human uh, inf uh, humans information or data subject information. Um, so the next one outside of context was choice, right? We, we, we can talk about choice a lot in the context of, uh, I saw your post um, very recently, Debbie, about um, cookies uh, and, and little cookie banners and consent flows. Choice comes in, uh, is, is, that's a great analog for choice, right? Consent to me uh, and choice in that context is, can I remove my, do I have the choice to add myself or remove myself into the different categories and ways that you're collecting information about me, whether it's first, second, or third party? I'm an anchor on choice for a second. I love using an analogy uh, to explain choice to people like, you know, uh, my parents who may not be nerdy data privacy wonks as me. So I have a daughter. Um, she is in daycare. And, you know, I put her in the care of teachers, caretakers, the principal, 
that's the agreement. I take her to school, you care for her, and I pick her up from school. That's the agreement. If the school wants to take her to the park or to the zoo or swimming class, they come to me, the parent, right? They ask permission and I give consent on, the, on behalf of my child uh, as to the bounds on which they can sort of break the existing agreement, right? And so that's how I look at choice, right? That it's my data as a user. Before you, you and, and, and I'm green based on the context that I understand. So before you use my data for any other means, let's say I gave you access to track my behavior around the tool or the app or the experience. That makes sense to me as a user because I want my experience to be counted in the improvement of said tool, okay? But when that data gets sold to Cambridge Analytica and it changes the course of the world that I live in, had I known that context, I would have made a choice to not provide specific bits of information or any of the bits of information to Facebook at the time. So that's choice. And then the last piece was control. Um, why I feel Google failed if we're still tracking <laughs> this super long explanation. Um, I understand the context. It's transparent. It's not written in legalese. I can give my consent. I can revoke my consent. Now we start talking about the right to erasure in controls, right? The right to deletion, so deletion or erasure, the right to information, right? Um, you know, the utility and the usability of accessing the features in your app to make, to act on those choices that I defined based on what I understand from the context that you provide. So it's successive, right? Context, choice, control. Where companies like Google and Facebook and startup founder starting a very great, creating value for a user, where companies fail, whether it be the Experian uh, breach, is that they're eroding trust because there's no context, there's no information. When it was last time, it's like I could ask you, Debbie, like, do you know and trust what your data is used for at your local bank? Like, you don't know. There's not enough context. And there's reason, there's a justifiable reason for that in some cases. There's no context, there's no choice, and there's no control. And that's sort of my. TED Talk, my, my diatribe around why I think Google eroded the trust, why I think Google um, sort of lost, lost its way in, in fueling adoption of the tool because it didn't do enough to, to check those three boxes uh, along the way. Also, they, they overhyped it and it wasn't really an augmented reality device, but they called it that. So. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. Uh, I, I love I, I love this. The, the three C's uh, you call it. Um, I, I want to talk about context so we can really go deep on this one. OK, um, because 
there are there are a lot of there are many levels to context, right? And context can change over time. So I think it's just such an interesting thing. And I like the fact that you brought it up. So what's happening now in the world, I feel let's talk about advertising. Okay. So what's happening now in the world on the regulation side? There are regulations trying to stop people doing kind of these data transfers from one party to the next without kind of consent, a consent mechanism. And part of that is making sure that the individual has some type of context as to why this data transfer is happening. Right now, a lot of this data, like you had mentioned, like uh, Cambridge Analytica, you know, if people knew that if their friend was going to take a, a personality test and then they were going to take you know, their data and then create uh, psychological profiles and then target them specifically with these ads and different things, they probably wouldn't have said yes to any of that, right? But there's so much that changes during during that chain. And then I, I guess for me, context is, you know, I think I've been, there are many levels, but the, the two levels I really want to talk about is, let's say a marketer takes data for one purpose and use it for another kind of marketable purpose, like maybe to sell you another product. And then kind of the underbelly of that is that someone's selling this data for a purpose that you would never agree to. Like, let's say gait recognition. This is a great example. So, so in a fitness tool, you may track, you know, someone's gait or whatever, but what if someone says, okay, I want to use this, this information to create like a risk model so I can deny people insurance, <laughs> right. you know, th- th- this, this is what the regulations haven't really like caught on to yet. I mean, the technology is moving so fast, but get, talk to me a little bit more about kind of context and kind of where we are right now in terms of context. It's a great question because I look at context and you're absolutely spot on. It's there's so many levels to it, but to simplify how I think about it, I think about it as context and understanding from the organization standpoint. uh, And then context in how it benefits a user or information understanding from the end user data subject standpoint. So, um, from the organization standpoint, you know, we, we've got so many different ways um, of understanding our data, and that's a mature space. Uh, using uh, metadata management, using data governance tools uh, like AWS Glue, uh, while you you know you're going through implementing um, your pipeline uh, type of things. You naturally need to understand, let's call it first-party data. Like, so you've got an e-commerce site and people are actually buying things from you. So they're, pro- they're volunteering their PII or sensitive information to you. The question that I ask an organization is, do you understand your data? Did you under- do you understand the, the provenance and origin lineage? Um, do you have a risk register um, that... Um, you know, sort of helps you codify areas of potential leakage uh, for the sake of security, but also uh, robust enough to um, help you explain to the user should they should there be a right for information request. 
for example, you know, I donated to your political campaign um, in 2006. What information do you have on me? That is a tough question to answer, especially if not in addition to, because when you dig into it through the lineage of, of user A, that person may have come to an event, um, you know, attended a webinar. And if you're a robust enough organization, there's so many vectors of input. So when I enact my agency on wanting to erase my data, right to erasure, what data are you erasing, right? Or from an end user standpoint, so that was on the business end, understanding the lineage providence and, and you know, retention in order to make certain policy and compliance decisions. And also to explain it to the end user. And then for the end user, it actually, my, the value for an end user actually benefits an organization in a way that a lot of people don't think. Because if I understand, I requested information, I learned that, oh, wait, I'm getting these emails from this organization because I perhaps opted into getting more information after I bought the widget or donated to the, the campaign. I also learned from the context that was shared based on the understanding from the organization as to who I am, um, that I'm actually very active. I, over an extended period of time, I've donated uh, multiple times. I thought I only donated once. I've attended an event, um, but I want to decide as a user that I don't want to be associated with this organization or individual or service or company ever again. And so that's one piece. And sort of explaining that in the uh, within the confines of extended reality, I've often used an example of a simple, you know, made up application like, you know, tagging, you know, an AR, augmented reality application where I do put graffiti or create artwork within digital artwork within real physical spaces. Uh, so say... I went to my favorite uh, grocery store and outside I sort of drew a heart or an apple um, and someone came around and defaced it, right? The apple or heart that I drew, whatever I drew may have some unique information that's tied back to me in this fictional example. Uh, I opted to share that. Uh, information to get attribution, say, for example, for the thing that I drew that I was proud of. But say a day later, I learned that um, someone else had come in and defaced it and put something inappropriate within that same space, right? I, I would then have that context because uh, I would ideally be notified uh, by the organization because they understand um, their data, uh, and will and, and will perhaps need to be in compliance with some laws to let me know if there's a change. And so then I can choose to remove my information from that. I don't want to be associated with that anymore. Uh, and, 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 and so the organization would have to act on that. That's how I think about context, uh, from that, just something that benefits an organization um, 
to understand their data, put simply, to govern their data for compliance needs in order to serve and respect an end user's needs, right? Uh, and, and, and naturally to be compliant with some laws. Excellent, excellent. So what, what, what's happening in the world right now with kind of XR and stuff like that that concerns you the most, right? Because you're, you're right on the cusp, like you're emerging, you know, you're forward thinking, like what, what are you seeing right now that, you know, maybe you can project into the future that is kind of top of mind for you, concern in this area? Um, that, I'm gonna say a jokey answer and I'm gonna say a serious answer. I just wanna preface it that way. That Facebook meta took the name metaverse or meta uh, and now everyone is associating their future vision or, or assumed vision uh, to a company versus, you know, a set of various experiences. Um, that's actually not the serious answer. The serious answer is more data stewardship and practices that um, current applications have. Um, you know, problems that we have with current applications like, you know, um, uh, uh, data governance, um, like dark patterns. Um, uh, if, if I were to uh, quote Harry Brignall, uh, who, who uh, came up with that moniker. Um, so taking dark patterns as one example uh, of a major concern when it comes to XR. Um, we know that companies are going to want to, you know, maximize the value of whatever solution they're having. Uh, they're going to want to collect as much information uh, in order to reach that goal or achieve that goal. Uh, and so as part of that, currently, there's a lot of coercive tactics to get you to not read, not get the right context uh, in order for you to not act on your agency to choose and control the data that they may have, because that goes against what they might think is value creation. So the the, the dark patterns example sort of is is a broader topic around data trust, and I think data trust, whether it's, what is talking about trust of or, uh, users and the organizations that they care about, uh, or just users and the data that they shed uh, to these organizations, I think is massive. Why? Because in addition to what we collect today, standard fare, name, you know, P, what we define as PII sensitive information or even uh, personal health information with, as we know, with VR, that expands a bit. You get a little bit more deeper um, insights into a user's day-to-day. -day. So let's break down the, the headset, for example. The headset has optics uh, in order to give you pass-through. I'm looking at the Oculus 2, for example. It gives you 
you know, grayscale, but an AI, a convolutional neural network does not need color in order to discern information uh, from its environment in order to give you occlusion or any of the experiences that we need for occlusion, light understanding, um, estimation, that kind of stuff. That data, if it falls in the wrong hands or that data, if acquired through the use of dark patterns uh, or make generally an organization makes it very difficult for me to understand how that data is used. It makes it difficult for me to, um, you know, give consent to the types of data that is going to be used. You know, that is sort of a darker path because of the wealth of information that a VR or an AR experience will be able to provide. Not only is, is it, you know, out, inside out optical understanding of the space to give me an experience, but it's more biometric information. Um, we talked about, you know, how you're walking, your gait. Um, we talked about your IPD or interpupillary distance. We talked about, you know, your motion, head motion, um, their, their technologies and, and academic papers on uh, brain-human interfaces in, in order to sort of tap into emotion. Uh, did I squint my eyes uh, through um, the inward cameras in a device, which is actually built for several things, but including foveated rendering so that I can actually optimize the performance of my experience. But now I can actually sense if a person is scared or enjoying that based on how my eye is. There's so much data being shed. And that is, to your question, my biggest concern that if an organization isn't a good steward of their users' data, isn't you know enacting safety mechanisms, privacy mechanisms, isn't compliant to what society and legal and, and regulations might deem as normal or expected, um, we could cause accelerated harm, accelerated in the sense that the harm that we may have today when Experian leaked all my personal information that's laughable when you think about tying my psychographic, my, my, my interests, tying that to the PII that is already collected, tying that to my biometric information, uh, and just getting a more holistic view as to who a user is and, and, and in the hands of a bad actor or an immoral organization. Nah, that's, that's bad news bears for anyone. And it, it ultimately erodes trust because it takes a few of those examples in this emergent space to erode the adoption that everyone wants and been talking about since the word metaverse came back into normal parlance that, you know, they're going to attribute these bad experiences that may be reported on as the norm. And that is a lack of trust. And I've used the word trust a lot, data trust a lot. The way I define it is that three C's, the transparency that you get, the 
value that the organization is delivering and the resulting acceptance by a user of any consequences that may happen. So Apple, for me personally, embodies my level of trust with Apple. They talk a big game, they have slip ups, but they're transparent in how they use my data and they fight for me in public, I presume, um, or at least I, I think. Um, they deliver good value for me. By the way, I'm an Android phone user, but I all my devices are Apple for the most part. But they 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 value good, they, they deliver good value for me. And so if there's a breach where I learn that Siri send uh, Apple sends anonymized um, voice data to improve the Siri experience. I accept that consequence and it's not a big deal. And it's, a, it's more a science. It's more an art for me than a science. It's just, I just trust that they're going to do right by me in the event of, of, of an issue. So again, another long answer, but yeah, that's where I am. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm glad you brought up Apple. Um, I posted an article and actually, I don't know, maybe it's gone viral now, uh, but the article I found was that as a result of Apple's privacy changes, they uh, estimated in the market the companies that um, were impacted by this change lost over, I think it's like $280 billion. And that's a lot of money, you know, over a short period of time. This change hasn't, I don't don't even know it's been out for a year yet. (laughs) <laughs> what do you think about this? I think if I were to turn my definition, if I were to have a one day when I grow up, start a business in scoring companies on their three C's or trust score. I don't know whether that's a thing or not. Something I've been mulling over. How do you score these? Apple would be scored pretty high. Um, they'd be in my top right-hand quadrant of any sort of chart that I might might have uh, when it comes to my trust and, and you know, uh, the issues that they may have. Um, I am not a Facebook user. Um, and so I don't really know how that affects Facebook technically. Uh, I'm also not an iPhone or iOS user, as I mentioned, so I don't know what they've done to address the issue in the article that you shared. But from what I hear, maybe you can, you can, I could turn it around and you can tell me a bit more about it is, is, you know, now Apple tells you, you know, what Facebook is using at, at a given time. That's a hard problem to solve. So I give them a lot of kudos to lean into that. Yeah. Well, in a nutshell, basically what what Apple did, and I did a video about this like last year. It's pretty funny because uh, I said the exact this exact same thing. It's like if you all don't change your business models, you're going to lose like a ton of money, <laughs> which basically has happened. Uh, but basically, what Apple did was they changed the way that they share data with third parties, right? So if I'm an Apple user, I'm first party. I give Apple data, right? 
uh, what they did was they changed the way the data shared with third parties. So basically, they made that data sharing opt-in instead of opt-out, right? So instead of just sharing it with third parties and then making me opt-out, they basically opted everyone out and we have to opt-in now. So a lot of that data that advertisers or marketers could get just by virtue of the fact, let's say if I downloaded, for example, if I downloaded an app on iPhone or something, in the past, not only with the, the iPhone, they know my device ID and stuff like that, but they would know every, all the amount of money that I've spent on other apps on the phone, you know, a lot of information, right, about the people. And then Apple, in terms of marketing, Apple, people with an Apple device, they they estimate is worth like 10 people with Androids, right? Because they spend a lot more money. So so getting a Apple device user and getting information about kind of what they like or what they spend was like just kind of like a gravy train. So the gravy train has been cut off now. And they said as a result of this, this app transparency change that they made that only 5% of people, five to six percent of people opted in. So I mean, I that, that's like a huge message, even though obviously it's, e- it's easier to uh, it's easier to have a tool that opts you out of stuff and then makes you opt in, right? Um, because on privacy, because that means, you know, if people really, really want this stuff, they're going to agree. But the problem is, this goes back to your trust thing, you know, companies that were using this data, first of all, a lot of a lot of individuals didn't know who these people were, right? So you can't even trust a company that you don't know to begin with. But then, you know, the companies, even that they did know, they don't trust them. So they're not sharing this data. So this is a huge problem. And I think it's showing up on people's balance sheets in red now. Good. <laughs> I'm sorry to take such a... Um positive spin i know there are individuals behind these that come into work every day not looking to do harm to anyone but you know there there's a there like i said in the very beginning the different definitions of data privacy this is more aligned with the i think it was tim berners lee that's starting a sort of looking at um a digital locker or, or a um a, a, a way for me to control the data that I want to shed. Um, it, it's almost like um, a step into that direction, that libertarian view that it's my data. Um, uh, and, and if you need it, I can charge you for it. Uh, it's not at that point yet, but I, I love the idea. I love the concept. Um, I, I do think that you know, third party data is slowly fading away. Um, and so marketing professional professionals need to evolve and understand new ways. Because if the cookie and, you know, those brokerages and, and the underbelly, as you put it, um, uh, exchanges that that the sort of pedal in my psychographic data through third party data. Um, 
once cookies go away, I know uh, Flock, Google introduced Flock last year uh, as a proposal that bombed. And then they introduced, I forget what they call it. I think it's called Topics or something. And, and so I would love to see that proposal gain some traction at that yeah, and, and some partnerships, partners sort of scrutinize it and, and adopt something like that because it takes this sort of um, opaque nature of cookies and puts what is being tracked in plain and simple English with my, you know, around my psychographic data. Uh, so if, and it's only retained for, I think it was like three weeks or something. So if it's my, you know, I think that I can't remember. It was like travel, fitness, and some other categories. Um, that is within Chrome. Google Chrome is the first browser that this would launch in. Um, I can go in and then enact, you know, understand what data is being collected, uh, right? Context, and then enact my choices based on, nope, I do not want you to track anything health-related, so X on that. Uh, it, theoretically, what I've understood with the proposal sort of aligns with what I think Apple is doing. It's unfortunate that billions of dollars are lost in the market, but you know, if that comes at the cost of providing a safer experience uh, for um, individuals, then adapt is what I say. <laughs> right, exactly. I'm like, you know, enjoy the fact that you had a gravy train for all this time and move on. Like the world is changing now. So um, uh, one, one thing I would love for you to talk about a bit, and you know, I've seen like your TED talk, you had done one in Tyson, so it was really cool. Um, but but one, one thing that, that that you do that I think is very important and I think it'll be very important as we um, embark upon using more advanced things like AI or, you know, XR and stuff. And that's the explainability of sort of AI and AI systems. So talk to me a little bit about the importance of explainability and how you kind of approach that in your work. Wow. Um, where do I start? <laughs> uh, the explainability is a sub is is a is is sort of a, a a subset of responsible use of ai uh, what i like to believe is what some people call responsible ai or the responsible use of ai um there are other uh Parts of responsible AI, such as data privacy, security, uh, and of course, explainability uh, is a key one. And the point of explainability is to shine some light on the black box nature. I hate that term, but the black box nature of machine learning predictions or deep learning AI predictions, we'll call it. Far too often when uh, an AI makes a prediction, a data scientist or an ML um, engineer might be able to understand uh, the F1 score, the performance. Uh, they know um, 
success rate of the 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 data model from a perspective of uh its confusion the, the confusion matrix which is basically you know what false positives do i have in this data you know the or even things like you know whether the data is balanced or unbalanced uh, in order to solve a specific need so explainability i actually couple nicely on the organization side to the context in that three C's. So sorry for just weaving that thread right back. No, no, no. perfect, it, perfect. It, it's important to to, um, to 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 tie that back in. So um, it's all explainability is part of the practice. Let me just sort of sum sum up what I've just said. It's part of responsible use of AI, which is part of the human centered AI practice, HCAI. Um, it is for, I, saw, I talked about one stakeholder, one key stakeholder that benefits from it, which is the data engineer. Other beneficiaries of explainable AI, when you are able to explain why a prediction made a inference or a prediction is for consumers, right? Because it, uh, it increases trust, again, bring that back in. It prevents harm. It prevents unfairness. Talking about bias and transparency. Um, for an end user or consumer, it you know it, it helps you understand the impact of an AI prediction. And with that, I'll, I'll give a quick example uh, where um, I was just reading this from Google, the Google Flights team, Google Flights teams, sort of responsible AI team or ethical AI team put together a white paper as to, you know, it, it makes a prediction, I'm oversimplifying here, but it makes the, the, the flights product uh, has a, you know, when to buy your ticket feature. Uh, and it will say, you know, Tuesday at three o'clock is the best time to buy this. But you get a nice little toggle, a consumer gets a nice little toggle tip or tool tip to explain why that time is the best, right? It's not in too much detail, but at least affords the trust and increase the trust. Um, I can talk, we can talk about how for an end user or consumer, it, it prevents or minimizes bias. Uh, I'd love to get into that, especially because I'm black and I care about those kind of things. That's right. Uh, but the last stakeholder for explainability is policy and compliance. So I'm talking both internally with your legal team and, 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 and your policy team uh, for a large organization. And for um, you know, explaining to policymakers and lawyers and stuff like that. Yeah. And so, explainability. One last thing is that you know you're you're basically understanding the model's behavior is super critical. And so, explainability, practical explainability, or XAI, is is uh, it's getting known to be called. It's critical in the construction and preparation of your data, building and training your model, evaluating um, and deploying uh, and, and, and monitoring for, you know, from when you're collecting and refining your data collection process, getting a lot more context uh, as to, um, you know, uh, the stage of your data using things like SHAP or LIME or integrated gradients. Um, on the building and training, uh, verifying your model's behavior uh, is, is gained through explainability um, and so on and so forth. 
um, lost my train of thought, but yeah. So that's explainability in a nutshell is, you know, it, it ties right back into the context from an organization standpoint. Do I understand my data in this case, the model? Right. Right. So I would be remiss to not have this conversation with you about bias and AI. So uh, this is one reason why I'm in privacy now. This is one reason why I talk about it a lot um, because, you know, that it directly impacts me. You know, the example I gave to someone, and this is kind of where I think we are right now. Let's say, let's say you go to a grocery store and you have a mat that you step on, right, to open the door. So you step on the mat, the, the door opens, but let's say the person behind you steps on the mat and the door doesn't open. So the first, the first person who steps on the mat, they're like, well, there's no problem because this mat opens the door for me, but then they don't want to investigate why it doesn't work for the other person. And I feel like that's kind of where we are with kind of the bias discussion uh, in AI and sort of these, uh, these technologies. What, what are your thoughts about that? The one, my thoughts are, it's still something that I'm learning. I have to be brutally honest. And from what I'm learning over the last year or two um, is that there's no one simple definition of fairness. Like to talk about bias, you need to talk about what's fair within the context of the experience that you're trying to um, deliver value for. Uh, and so there's no one simple definition, which is why organizations need to, you know, look at the domain and the and, and what they're trying to achieve. If it's a doormat that uses some sort of uh, convolutional neural network to understand who uh, who's coming at the door for security benefits, uh, for example, uh, in your just sort of riffing off of your example there, um, what's fair, right? What's the one thing or the net end things that society as a whole today may accept as fair. Uh, and then of course, does that definition align with my organization's principles around delivering the solution? So fairness is very, very hard in a tangled web to define. But with the door example, assuming there's some sort of camera and the benefit of security, um, discriminating against who gets in based on what they wear uh, may be one of your definitions of fairness. What they look like, uh, their, their, the color of their skin, uh, and so you then sort of, you have a bunch of knobs that you want your model uh, to, to tweak with your model to say, okay, well, I'm optimizing less for the performance of my model and more for fairness or uh, to de-bias any uh, situations. I do not want to bring, I want to train my models with a data model that has enough people of a variety of shades of color, um, types of clothes. So if I'm wearing my hat backwards, it doesn't assume that I'm a criminal got my hoodie on and a mask and it might just be because there might be a pandemic and it's cold. Um, but that historically was never thought of. So you can't talk about bias without talking about fairness and, and fairness is very hard to define and domain specific and situation specific. So then we get into bias, right? There are tons of different, there's behavioral bias, there's, there's tons of different types of bias. And they're actually, in my opinionated view, there is good bias. The, the knobs that I tweaked 
earlier to optimize for fairness versus performance. Because uh, you know, you tweak one, it's like a squeeze toy. Once you squeeze one, the other sort of takes a hit. Uh, is actually how uh, it, I've seen it work. You know, it, it, it's 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 very tough, and so um, I've been doing this full time for um, uh, at, at in my full time job, um, and and we're trying to sort of bring some of these practices and bake these in by design um, with every model that we build. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I'd love to unpack that if we have time. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be great. That'd be great. Um, so if it, if it were the world according to Noble and we did everything that you said, what would be your wish for privacy anywhere in the world, whether it be technology, regulation, human stuff, what are your thoughts? From, I'll take this super quickly from the policymaker standpoint that they don't overregulate before the technology is ready. I know it's it's currently in the U.S. We do not have a data privacy federal law. Every state's like the Wild West, and every state is sort of taking a different pa- pass at it. Um, or several states are uh, Virginia, where I'm from, for example, um, uh, passed one in the last administration. Um, I would hope that policymakers sort of work closer with. Um, device manufacturers and content creators uh, and, you know, ex, you know, publishers uh, and everyone in between uh, and listen to some of these issues. Also work with the end user uh, policymakers, listen, have these listening sessions or whatever with, with end users or just look at data uh, to understand the impacts of qualitative and quantitative. So that's the policymakers on the device manufacturer side. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, an ideal world would be one where software development kits, uh, SDKs or APIs uh, and interfaces and interactions with the device uh, is open in a way uh, that is also governed. So open yet governed. And and what I mean by that is, um, you know, increase innovation by, you know, not creating fiefdoms. Um, and, and, you know, proprietary hardware uh, in a way that, you know, innovators who want to do right by users would have to wait until, um, you know, a feature becomes available uh, publicly. So just a responsible way to open up some of these hardware devices, uh, both augmented and virtual. Uh, for the creators, uh, you know, a lot of the experiences that end users, you know, want to take benefit from, no pressure to them, but that's, you know, if I'm in alt space, it's the content creator space, right? Uh, no pun intended. So essentially, there's a lot of pressure on on creators and and uh, you know studios and uh, experienced developers, whether it be for e-commerce, education, healthcare, uh, or entertainment, uh, to practice those three C's. Uh, you know, be transparent in the types of data uh, and provide them enough context. Provide the cho- you know choices for users to actually opt in and opt out uh, as they wish. Give the controls of the user's data based on one and two, and as a result, you start look. It, it you know if you have to practice 
zero, uh, sorry, uh, data minimization or um, move your algorithms to a different type method of AI, like federated learning or, or edge-based uh, um, learning um, as a benefit, that will inspire new avenues for you to make money. Uh, it is a positive sum because end users feel safer and give you um, their data uh, and, and, and you provide them with the controls on that. And you essentially learn new ways to provide better experiences. And I'm thinking about sort of, uh, I've been talking a lot about um, um, progressive disclosure in games. If I'm playing like a, you know, uh, you know, Candy Crush or whatever it's called. I don't play Candy Crush, but as an example, you know, you get nudges along the way uh, and, and the only collecting or giving information in that case, in the case of gaming, when the user needs it progressively. I think there is a space for a AR or VR and extended reality experience where when I look, when I look down or I, my gaze is, you know, not focused on a thing, I have a security um, virtual orb or assistant that tells me in context of what I'm doing, where I am, you know, what data could be collected. And I can interact with that personal agent of sorts. That is my personal guardian, I guess uh, we'll call it. I'm just making this up on the fly for you. Um, that will allow me to um, act on any choices that I have to add. I, I have to that I feel like acting on in context with what I'm about to do, uh, and understand the context or the the detracting features that I may not be able to experience if I do not give my name. Oh, wow. That's a tour de force answer. <laughs> I, I was making it up as I was going on. Very good. Know. Very good. Well, this is amazing. Thank you so much for being able to be on the show. Uh, this is fascinating. I love what you're doing. You're definitely on that cutting, leading, leading edge. And I like to hear kind of smart people talk through this, you know, having practical experience, but then also understanding how to communicate that to, to people at all levels. That's great. Thank you. I, I, hopefully if it makes sense, once we, once this podcast goes out, I've done my job because I, I tend to like to break down complex subjects in a way that one, I understand in order to explain it to somebody. So um, I, I am honored and I thank you so much um debbie data diva uh for, for <laughs> creating the space for me to talk to you and your audience and um hopefully um uh who knows uh what happens in the future and maybe i can come back and talk about it i'm just inviting myself by the way oh. <laughs> we'll find ways we can collaborate together that'd be great <laughs> thank you so much thank you <laughs>